Let's pretend it's the end of this whole ugly story. We vanquished the foe and we triumphed in glory. There's nothing but rainbows and blue skies ahead. Hallelujah, amen, it's the end. We threw off the yoke and we Welcome broke to all Before the, the Future Came, temporarily not a Star Trek podcast. We're looking at the ideals of utopian science fiction as we voyage from one work to the next, following a breadcrumb trail of motifs. This month, we're talking about the novella Binti by Nede Okorafor, a winner of the 2015 Nebula Award for Best Novella, the 2016 Hugo Award for Best Novella, and the 2017 Nomo Award for Best Novella. I'm Melissa, and all I could do was smile and think, how did I not know? I'm Gregory, and the more I speak, the less monstrous my voice sounds. And I'm Lucy, who, like Bean Tea's new oat jizé, am thick and ready. <laughs> I don't think I can use that. Wow, that is not what was written in our document. <laughs> I'm getting out of here. Oh, we have already recorded a general intro to the show, but uh, in solidarity with the writers and actors who are striking in Hollywood, we're delaying the Star Trek part of our Star Trek podcast. So instead, we'll be talking about other utopian sci-fi works and what ideals we see in them, plus just stuff we find cool. At the end of each episode, we'll find out what we're discussing next time. We'll take turns picking, and each time it'll be a work that somehow relates to what we discussed this time. Since this is our first, uh, our first podcast episode, effectively, uh, there's no sort of link between what we've read and uh, and any past episodes. So today, we are talking about Binti. Gregory picked it, so please give us a summary of the novella in your own words. Sure. Uh, before I start, I want to note uh, there's some Herero and Arabic words that are important to the book. I've done some research on pronunciation. We might get some wrong, but we'll do our best. Now, Harbonizer's Log. Stardate, the far future. Binti, a mathematically gifted 16-year-old girl from the Himba people in southwestern Africa, runs away from home after being accepted to Umza University, one of the best schools in the galaxy. She wears Ojize on her skin and hair, a red cosmetic made from fat and the clay of her homeland, which prompts a lot of bigotry from the Kush, an ethnically Arab group that is the dominant earth culture in the book. She also carries an Adon, a mysterious ancient device made of unidentifiable metal. On the living ship Third Fish, she makes friends among her fellow new students, but the ship is suddenly attacked by Medusae, jellyfish-like aliens who are at war with the Kush. They murder almost everyone on board, but Binti survives because her Adon somehow makes Medusae flesh wither, killing one of them. She seals herself in her room for a few days and, as she's getting hungry, discovers that the Adon allows her to communicate with the Medusae somehow, and also <laughs> makes leaves grow from her door, which is made of gold. The Medusae say that humans can only commit violence. They break down her door, but the Adon hurts them if they come close. The most bold Medusae is Okwu, who has a withered tentacle, some sort of disability. 
When it touches her and gets her ochize on it, it seems to heal. Okwu brings her food and water and asks more questions, noting that her ochize-covered plaits are like its okuoko, or tentacles. She realizes it's young, like her. Can I ask a can I ask a clarifying question before you keep going? Just because I thought that, and maybe I just misread it, but I thought Oku hurt his tentacle on Binti or Binti's godstone. I didn't realize it was already hurt. Yeah, I I looked for that, but I wasn't able to to tell so so one of them the one that touches her and its tentacle shrivels up um i think ends up falling to the ground in the cafeteria scene yeah i think the one that touches her in the cafeteria dies yeah but maybe that one is okwu i didn't i couldn't find anywhere else where okwu actually touched her before it mentions its withered tentacle but i'm not sure it might not be. They, it, the, I got the impression that, I don't know, maybe Oku's just young, but I got the impression that, that it is, um, that it's one of the reasons why people kind of treat it uh, as an inferior is because it's disabled. That was my impression, but I might be wrong. So, oh, Thank you. I just wanted to understand. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, I, I, I can see either reading. Oku tells her that they've left the pilot alive so that they can trick Umza University into letting them land and launch a surprise attack to recover their chief's stolen stinger. She offers to give the Medusa her ochize and help negotiate a more peaceful result in exchange for her life. They take her on board their ship, where the chief insists that she put down her Adon if they're going to work together. She does so and gets stung, but recovers. The ship lands and she goes with the Medusa to negotiate with Umza Uni. Umza Uni is a university the size of a planet, and possesses sufficiently advanced technology that they can actually make a decision at a faculty meeting. Binti makes a speech, and the university agrees to return the stinger and make amends on the condition that Okwu join Binti in attending Umza Uni. As she collapses in relief, Binti realizes that when she was stung, her hair plaits were replaced with Okuoko. She's declared a hero by all parties and takes a bit to recover from the trauma. She searches a forest at the uni for red clay and mixes a new batch of alien ochize. She's nervous that it won't be right, but it heals a burn Oku got in class. She makes a call to her family at home. And that's the end of this story. They packed a lot in. It's a lot it's a lot in this story. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a short novella. It's uh my copy is ninety pages, uh, with not particularly small font. Not so, yeah. It's it's pretty brief. The I think the uh, other two books in the trilogy are a li- little longer, but I don't recall. Well, we've each brought a topic for discussion. Mine is the concept of violence and empathy. So I've been listening to a podcast called <laughs> The Redemption of Jar Jar Binks by Dylan Marin, in which Marin explores the internet's hatred of Jar Jar Binks when Star Wars The Phantom Menace came out in 1999. <laughs> I promise I'm going somewhere with this. Marin <laughs> especially focuses on the impact of all of this hate on Ahmed Best, 
who played Jar Jar. Mirren's other podcast, Conversations with People Who Hate Me, focuses on a similar theme. He started the podcast by booking, booking interviews with people who said hateful things to him on social media. He believes, like I do, honestly, that by talking with folks and hearing their stories, one lessens hate. Not unlike Marin, Bean Tea offers us a spectrum with violence on one end and empathy on the other. Movement from violence toward empathy means less harm. Okwu hates Binti and is ready to murder her until he learns her story. And she fears the Medusas until she can speak their language. Once they know each other's stories, it's a short journey to them becoming friends, which is wild when you think about the way the initial scene with the Medusas is described with Binti covered in the blood of the boy she had started to lo- love. Yeah, she the that scene is incredibly vivid. Like yeah. it's really suddenly really gory. Yeah, it's it's quite violent, right? And yeah. um and I think and I have more thoughts about this, but I think it has a, a lot of like that sensory imagery with the smells and the food being described and the tastes mm-hmm. and then that like carnage kind of that happens. So when you really think about the short amount of time that happens between this massacre that happens on the third fish and then <laughs> Binti and Okwu becoming school chums, like I would say that, that spectrum of violence and empathy is what marks Binti as a utopian text. Um, other types of futures in science fiction imagine villains as being motivated by self-interest, power, capital, etc. Binti suggests that there aren't villains. There are just people who haven't scooted far enough on the empathy spectrum yet. I think that's a real sort of idealism uh, that marks yeah. this text as being utopian, even though maybe there are aspects of it that you would say are not utopian yeah i guess i was thinking of the utopianism as like strictly like there is a political entity in this story which is a utopia which is umza uni like they're this (laughs) multicultural incredibly generous they're you know a university that has someone's body part on display in a museum and when the person comes and is like that's my body part you need to give it to me they're like oh sure yeah we're sorry we didn't realize like that just doesn't happen in our world and that's that's utopian but yeah also there's just a utopian worldview of the idea that like you can forgive someone for such a massacre yeah i mean it's it's amazing when you think about it and like i've been listening to that podcast and hearing how once people start listening to each other i mean you really do hear that movement you know it's a real thing you can see Mm -hmm. it and there's other contexts for it too but uh I do think it's interesting that you don't see it all that often in texts. You know, you often do have a villain. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's, or at least sort of a villainous culture. And I think what does strike me about being T is that sort of idealism about people. Uh, I also think that it's very interesting to me the way the book represent or the novella uh, represents the sensory perception of difference and hate. Um, the Kush uh, whisper about how the Himba smell bad, right? When Binti is walking mm-hmm. originally um, when she's on the ship. And then she is really struck by the bad smells of the Medusas. Uh, and then even there's sort of a grotesque element to the tentacles, the Okuoku. Uh, and, and that's paralleled with the way the Kush 
seem to perceive Binti's hair mm-hmm. and her um, her cultural practices. Uh, it's it's sort of grotesque until you know it, and then it's appreciated and familiar. Mm-hmm. Uh, in yeah, this the, I mean, the, the Kush are kind of the closest thing yeah. to a villain in this book. And even they aren't, right? They're her friends. Yeah. She says, I became friends with them. We had this in common. Mm-hmm. We, we loved doing <laughs> whatever Treeing. math declensions Treeing. are. <laughs> Treeing is like dividing the math in two repeatedly until you get closer to God. Like I started doing a bit of research and then did not want to <laughs> get into treeing. Um, <laughs> there is some sort of link between trees and fractalness and a way of looking at fractals as trees and vice versa. So it's not, yeah. So it's not completely divorced from reality, but I never took any sort of coursework on fractal stuff. Wasn't my ball of wax. I think that something, something this book does that kind of lets it get away with this, in this, you know, this utopian viewpoint is the fact that we don't see a deep culture of either the Medusa or the university. Like we see a faculty meeting, which again, absolutely yeah. wild that this faculty meeting of multiple professor types and presumably administrators got together and decided something in a reasonable amount of time and it was good yeah it take i mean it does take forever it, they it talk does. about how they are just like arguing for i feel like it might be a yeah. day it's some wild amount of time but uh, but a small amount of time when you think about how long it really takes us right. <laughs> in faculty meetings. Yeah, I mean, it would it would take us, like, it would take any Earth organization much longer to decide on repatriating yeah. an artifact. There would need to be limited duration committees and all sorts of stuff. Um, but the fact that we don't get, you know, we're handed a sample of the Medusa. We're handed a sample of the university. And it's different from the way the Kush are treated. Because the Kush, we're getting a lot of different viewpoints on them. They they treat the Hembas as if they're slaves or near slaves, right? Like we get lots of sort of cultural things there. And it lets us say the Kush are almost villains because we have more context to say, here's a broader sample mm-hmm. of their behavior and multi-generational because the parents believe this and it gets passed down through the, you know, the life of, of folks in the town um, where we don't get that. And it allows us to just see, oh, if you talk, this is, I don't want this to sound uh, dismissive, but oh, if you talk to each other, you'll understand and have empathy for each other. Uh, which I think, you know, <laughs> just thinking like real world context, I feel like we're in a place where when we talk about politics, there is a, there is a, a notable segment that's like, hey, don't you can miss me with this compassion and empathy business for people who want to kill me right uh-huh. uh for bigots and so on and it's it was interesting to read this and be like this is this is nice this is a nice utopian idea that you can talk to each other and stop wanting to kill each other <laughs> in, in in part because like in this book there's no like there's not a sense at least to me that like there's a preaching going on where it's like someone saying, Hey, you oppress people. You need to be empathetic. Right. Instead. It's sort of like coming. It feels like it's coming naturally and internally. And Orcorphor is, is uh, 
african-american but um i think reasonably close to i think some of her recent family is from africa and so like she's got a a particularly particular context on both being black in the u.s and being you know what african culture is Mm -hmm. like um so yeah well though i would say i i I do think that the empathy i think the empathy is required for survival right it is the only way that binti is able to survive being Mm -hmm. the events of the third fish is by her capacity in the book she's a harmonizer right her capacity Mm -hmm. to harmonize and to understand is how she survives so we're going to talk about that later (laughs) (laughs) well it's good but i just think that it's different than just empathy naturally bubbling up it is crucial Mm -hmm. to her survival for her to gain that empathy it's a deliberate practice that she has practiced yeah exactly right she is a harmonizer and she's real good at it and has worked at it and her dad was one before her uh and it's you know her blend of cultural perspectives and experience that leads her to be able to do that work because it is work and i think the novel the novella successfully represents it as work uh too but it is under duress i think we we, yeah yeah. like it's not that like she sat and meditated for 72 hours and then was like oh Let's see if we can talk. It was like, I have run out of food yeah. and all my friends are dead. <laughs> it's deliberate, but it's not a free choice. Yeah. yeah. I guess the the last thing I would say about it that I thought was fascinating was that uh, the literal transformation that Binti experiences um, with her hair becoming a kuoku it seems to suggest to me that empathy and experiences with other people does literally change us, right? Yeah. That we become different uh, because of that uh, experience, I guess. And I think that's interesting. And uh, for the record, because I don't know if I've been clear about it, I love it. I fucking love it. I love this kind of idealistic <laughs> yeah. um, thinking. I, you know, I had a dream was it two nights ago that I tried to persuade Ron DeSantis that he shouldn't <laughs> be like a fascist dictator. And my dead grandmother like woke up to tell me that that was a bad idea. <laughs> and she was probably right. <laughs> but <Yeah. laughs> I did call my mom just to let her know about it as well. So oh my goodness. Uh, <laughs> it's a nice thing to imagine. And it's, it's a cool thing to have like shown in fiction as an aspirational thing even if it's not practical in everyday life. Yeah, I mean, always, always. I was bringing that up to say that I do feel like Melissa was saying before, like, I feel that is a very real tension in my life, you know, mm-hmm. that I try really hard to empathize with all kinds of people. But then, you know, when you hear about some of the things happening right now, it is really difficult. It is, although my brain is something's wrong with me and somehow I can imagine being on a train with Ron DeSantis and thinking I'm going to talk to this person like that is not like (laughs) that's not real right because he's not probably on this spectrum of violence and empathy I mean maybe I'm wrong but (laughs) I don't know I mean I think that I I think I, I have to hold multiple truths in this on this in my head I have to 
be mm. the person who is interested in and in invested in things like nonviolent communication, but also a person who understands that it is less productive in a conversation about Ron DeSantis to be like, we should just love him into not hating people, right? Mm -hmm. Like, th those are two things that are true. <laughs> and I want the world yeah. to be the sort of world where we can all have frameworks for having difficult conversations and meeting people and having certain kinds of conflict in, in healthy ways. Um, and this is partially probably a lack of my own knowledge and education, but how do you make that writ large? Like, how do you, you know, make mm -hmm. that scale? I don't know. And I think that's kind of a tough space and a, and a fun one to play in, a good one to play in. Just to be fair to my brain, I didn't try to love Ron DeSantis into changing. No, I no, tried no. to. I tried to logic and rational. I had Oof. a book of 51 maps uh, <laughs> depicting the power structures of the states. In 50 blood. states plus four in blood. Uh, so it wasn't love. It was logic and rationality. So That's true. I don't know that that would work either, though. Probably not. <laughs> So speaking of rationality, I've got a a thing that I want to discuss, which is just like what what actually happens in this book. Like this book has just straight up magic in it. Yep. Uh, it, it is solidly sci-fi, but there are things that happen that are that are both technological things, which I'll talk about later. I think in our in our ten forward section, there's like technological things that are magical, but also like. The Ochize heals Medusa flesh, and it's not a chemical process, right? Like, the she takes clay and fat from her homeland, and it heals injured Medusa. And it, notably, it doesn't heal humans. It's not a healing mud. It's not a healing cosmetic. It's it's a like it's specific to Medusa. But then when she makes it on Uzma Yuni, it also heals the Medusa. Mm -hmm. So like there's something inherent to bean tea that makes that happen. And and there's it's it's not and it's not like it's not like Bean Tea is special girl that like has something magical about her specifically. Um because like she's not surprised that Ochize has this power. And she's used to, like, she can harmonize. She seems to be able to make electricity appear <laughs> by doing math. Yes. Like, the 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 Adon, she doesn't understand the abilities of the Adon, but she's not surprised that when the, like, weird blue lines come from the Adon and go through this golden door, which is a good... A, what's, what's the line? It's a good conductor and a waste to have as the door yes. frame. But it's not a good electrical conductor. It's an gold was an information conductor, oh. and its mathematical signals were stronger than anything. So like, she knows that she can do math and like cause electricity to come into being. And this is just a thing that people know how to do in this universe. But also, and and, and when that electricity hits the door, it causes leaves to grow. And I think those are literal leaves. That was that right? was my impression. Yeah. 
it just literal like and that's not a surprise that's not unexpected i thought she was a little she was like like oh huh leaves have grown yeah but it's not like how could that possibly be true <laughs> the ship is a, a living being too right yeah like mm-hmm. the third fish is alive yeah it's got big old air bladders that contain a bunch of plants to provide the oxygen for the journey and it's like the first time bean tea has ever been in humid air is in one of those air bladders but like do y'all what do y'all think is the like how how does the ojize heal the medusa <laughs> I'm going to give a uh, a too rational answer, which is that we don't know because we don't have enough data. We know that she Fair made enough. this these two batches of Ochise. We don't know if a batch her father made would also have the same effect. It could. Hmm. There could be something about the creation, especially from someone who can make informational currents, right? There's all sorts of things happening. Mm-hmm. Um and processes involved that are not described and presumably just things that one does uh, that we don't see laid out. So I don't know that we can say whether it's her specifically or not. Yeah. I I think I could give a sort of science fiction explanation, which is it has something to do with math <laughs> that like, if you could just do enough math, you can, like make sense of it. it's kind of like the matrix i, I felt like that's was kind of where it was t- <laughs> reminded me <laughs> with the way she talked about math and harmonizing is being able to sort of make reality make sense in a different way kind of matrixy like so i could think of it like that but um my textual evidence for an alternate reading maybe a more magical reading would be the line when she says um I think she says it directly to um, Oku. Um, I may have it highlighted, but she says, I can't give that to him. It's my culture mm-hmm. when she's talking mm-hmm. about it. Right. It, and so to her, that suggests that it, it doesn't represent a sort of rational mathematical matrixy process, but instead is something about her, um, herself and her experience and her, um, her background that, is able to heal maybe because she is a special magical girl um because she is the only one of her people who's gone to space right to go to this university so um i mean she is she is special and unique and different uh and i think the story of the book is about that so i don't know yeah there's a there's a part where she says this is kind of a throwaway line that says that she knows how to do both soft equations and hard equations mm-hmm. and that the hard equations can do more than the soft ones somehow uh, <laughs> and i've i've so i've read the the full trilogy mm-hmm. and i won't go into too much detail but the adon is revealed to be alien technology so the adon is not a magical thing literally like from our perspective as sci-fi readers um but there is magic continuing in the trilogy Mm -hmm. there's there's kind of the the traditions of the himba have a magic to them where it's unclear 
to the sci-fi reader, to the skeptical reader, whether it's just a thing they kind of all agree is true about certain things, or whether there is something more transcendent going on that could be observed by, say, a kush. There's a um, another book series. It's written by a white person, so you know, <laughs> keep that in mind. But um, Tad Williams's uh, Other Land uh, mm-hmm. also concerns um, African characters who are immersed in science and studying at a university um very similar to binti in a lot of ways um and one of the characters is from sort of a more um and they're they're from a more our version of earth (laughs) um future um and one of the characters is though from a place um similar to where binti is binti is from and the book explores that sort of tension between science and belief and these sort of cultural beliefs about the dreamland uh, that that those characters have to reckon with. Um, and I saw some similarities to that um, in Bean T2. Uh, maybe more carefully and thoughtfully explored, although I think Tad Williams does a okay job. Yeah, I think it's interesting that... Often people approach sci-fi, and and especially Star Trek, which we're not talking about, um, from a perspective of like everything has to make sense and there needs to be a, a motivation behind everything, which is often applied weirdly selectively, right? It's like if you can give a if you can do techno babble, if you can give a put a technological name on something, then it suddenly becomes okay, mm-hmm. right? Like you could imagine a version of this book where when she initially makes ochize she's like and we mixed in the nanoparticles that we've been putting in our ochize for the past 200 years and then you'd be like oh well they're the nanoparticles healed them (laughs) but the book specifically doesn't do that Mm -hmm. even though that's exactly the same right saying the clay of my homeland versus nanoparticles those are exactly as explanatory but we're just not used to sci-fi you know stories with spaceships and aliens just being like yeah it's magic the, the closest we get in popular big popular stuff is like the force from star wars which is sort of feels psionic or psychic in a way that that makes it more acceptable and maybe in a way i this way of thinking that we see in being t is is more helpful it's more generative because uh, a spiritualism that makes space for things we just don't fucking know <laughs> right things that are Mm -hmm. unknown to us is more real and right because we actually don't know we don't know that much about how the universe works there's so much that's unknown to us and so um a way of thinking that embraces our limitations and all of the things that we just we're sort of guessing about gravity really um Mm -hmm. good guesses maybe but we don't totally get it guesses that have worked out so far exactly yeah um, so I think I think that it's really very Western to argue that we have these facts that we know, and this is mm-hmm. unchallengeable, right? Uh, and I think maybe books like this, you know, make a little bit more space for a different kind of knowing uh, that is more inclusive. Uh, and I would say there's a, I think there's, when we talk about that difference between science and let's say spirituality i i might say that the the difference is 
in at least Western world, etc., religion is just as rigid as what you were proclaiming science is, right? Like, religion mm-hmm. has the answers that science doesn't. And this isn't doing that either. This is mm-hmm. a third space that is a, a softer space that doesn't have to explain itself because it doesn't need to, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't have to have all the answers. It just is. Um, and I think that is, I think it's it's useful to remember that the way spirituality manifests in our society, real world, is often in a rigid, <laughs> organized religion that also proclaims to have answers and fails to do so. Um, so, yeah, I think that's another thing that makes the book interesting is that it, it's not playing in that space either. Yeah, I didn't say religion because I don't think this book has a lot to do with religion. I think it is interested in a spirituality um, that is not the same as religion. But I think you're right that in like, especially in Western culture, we generally conflate the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a little more of what I would call religion in some of the later books when when we get to see more of Binti's home culture. Oh, interesting. But this this sort of reminds me a little bit of Babylon Five, which is probably also struck work and so we also aren't discussing but it's a it's a show that has like advanced technology and techno magic and things that just seem to be magic and aliens that might just be angels and a bunch of other things and like those things coexist in tension but the show never seems to like value one perspective over the other mm-hmm. I'm 100% confident that wherever he is, Bruce Boxleitner is supporting the strike. So I think it's okay to have a brief reference to Babylon 5. And J. Michael Straczynski better be. Boy, he would disappoint me if he wasn't. Yeah, so I want to talk about how well this book handles being someone being alienated, being ostracized through... I would say like every inch of her skin and being and Mm -hmm. still finding a way through. And I guess I should say, I guess I assume people can tell things by voices, but I'm a black woman. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm a queer black woman. And I also can't help but think about my own educational transitions in reading this story. Um. So I went to college at a very small engineering school that had about 1,800 people. There were 40 black people, of which I was one of them, (laughs) in the entire school, all all gears. Um, And I was in computer science instead of where a lot of the femme folks were in at the college were in the hard sciences, like biology, chemistry, like not the engineering necessarily. Uh, And so stepping into that space, it was like, okay, let me, let me say this first. My queerness is in the form of being pan romantic and asexual, right? Like it's in these things that are pretty invisible. Uh, Mm -hmm. I cannot hide my skin. I cannot hide my hair my body shape, the way I talked, the rituals. Like there was this whole thing about when I washed my hair and how often. Because... Like people would ask you? Or people would notice and then they would ask. Yeah, they'd be like, oh, you only wash your hair once a week? 
And I was, you know what I mean? Me and the other two black girls on, on the floor in freshman year. Like, it's probably what the they should have been doing, too. Yeah, white people, get on this <laughs> don't wash your hair too much train. That's why your hair is like that, white people. <laughs> because you wash it too much. Um, all these little, all these rituals, like the smell of your hair is a real thing when you put product in your hair, right? Like, I mm. can smell, like, the smells of of like shea butter and coconut butter and like the things that we put in our hair identifiable like across a room like oh there's a black person here who puts oil in their hair like this is a thing that many of us do and it's inescapable uh i felt like for almost all of my freshman year i was just like walking around naked i just felt like every inch of me was on display for critique all the time including intellectually because there's that mm -hmm. right um especially the people assuming that you were somehow less intelligent or whatever because of your exactly race. especially being in the class where we read the bell curve <laughs> which became Yikes. a whole thing relatively uncritically I mean, right I know, it was pretty critical but the i mean the professor and i were pretty critical <laughs> with, <laughs> with the rest of the class i don't know uh didn't feel like it but i also this when i when i read this story and i was reading about the the edon right and how this or the the adon and how it is becomes this communication device and and a, a shield from violence and this is probably a more common experience other than just you know being black but the idea of having a device having something that you shove in front of you and say hey look here's a thing why don't we all look at this thing <laughs> why don't we let this thing sit between us and allow us to communicate. Um, and for me, that was computers. I could go into, I could go to that college and people would look at me weird. And then I could be like, look at this thing I programmed or, hey, let's program this thing together. And we had this language that wasn't good at first because we're all 18 and have all learned different programming languages or none at all or whatever. But like mm -hmm. you begin to have this little space that's like, hey, don't hurt me too bad. I'm enough like you. I have a thing that we have in common that you respect. Good or bad, like there's this thing that you can just put out there. Um, and so computers, comp sci, um, and this is cross-cultural too, like beyond, you know, sometimes when I meet, I don't know, uh, folks out in the in the wild and other circumstances, there's some of this, this friction too. Like you go to... Uh, like a LARP or role-playing group or something like this. And you're like, yikes. Um, so that's where I, I think it's probably also more common, but that just really resonated with me. Um, and also the ways in which this softens as I've gotten older, where I do have that, like if I start a new job or, you know, move into a new space, I definitely still have like, oh, hey, we're here to do a thing. Hey, here's a, here's a thing. Um, but I have much less fear. I'm much more comfortable knowing that people are going to look at me and put me in a bunch of different boxes. Um, and part of why it bothers me less is that, is that I have also changed, right? Like, just mm -hmm. like in the, like, you can't not absorb some of what is happening that you have steeped yourself in like a good tea. <laughs> <laughs> it's it changes you it does change you physically 
It changes the way you talk. It changes, you know, the, the ways in which I can mode switch now are different than they were 10 years ago and way different than they mm. were 20 years ago. Um, and so it's, it's all very, it's all very material. It's all very physical and very real. And it's inescapable when it is your skin. Uh, I, the scene where she describes how a bunch of them washed off <laughs> all the, mm, that's a beautiful yeah, scene. Yeah. So they all go to a lake or something like that. And they all, yeah, this is a flashback to her childhood. Yeah. And they wash off all their ojize and look at themselves and they're like, oh god we're naked this is what is happening like no one can see us like this we would be yeah they're like we would get beaten right if someone knew we did never this. get married or something like that um and mm-hmm. that there's there are times in to varying degrees at which you sit and you 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 examine yourself and your own body and your own culture and you strip it away and you go what what is here? What is it? <laughs> what mm-hmm. would I be if I changed this? If I started perming my hair again? If I started, you know, if I wore it in certain ways that white people find more acceptable? Like, what would be left if I did that? And would I recognize it? <laughs> um, and sometimes the answer is, it'd be fine. Um, I'll grow tentacles and... <laughs> and <laughs> share my ojize but you know other times it's not other times it's like nah this is turns out turns out this is deep it's not just habit lissa what did you think about the scene at the end when um when binti makes the new ojize and um applies it and oku says oh good you were fading I liked it. I wish I had a friend like that. Um, that moment is one that's like, it's always nice to have a moment where you, people recognize that they are seen and not just mm. for things they did, not just for things they perform, services rendered, but also for what makes them a whole person. And I think that scene highlighted that, oh, okay, you know, you're not, it's not a matter of moving back, you know, to oneself or a a sense of forwardness or backwardness, but sort of whole, Hmm. being whole. Um, I thought it was cute. I want to circle back to your mention of hair and scent, Mm -hmm. uh, because there's, I didn't mention in the summary because I didn't get that low level, but there's there's a uh several times throughout the story there's someone touches binti's hair Mm -hmm. and touching black people hair big deal um very prob people always want to do it (laughs) and it's super rude and kind of invasive Mm -hmm. um and (laughs) in the in the book the first time it happens is a bunch of akush women and they're talking very rudely about her. And, and Miti has scented her ochise with jasmine flowers, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they like, one of the women reaches out, touches it, doesn't 
address Binti at all is just completely treating her as if she's not there or or is subhuman. (laughs) And one of the people is like, I hear it smells like shit. And the woman's like, huh, it actually kind of smells like flowers. I'm weird. Looks like shit, though. And it's like this, like, utter disregard for her personhood is very contrasted against, like, the first words we hear, I think, from the Medusa are like, uh, you were shameful. Like, mm-hmm. they, from the very beginning, even though they, they don't really consider her a person yet, they're still talking to her as if she's a person, even before they're like, oh, she actually can communicate using the Adon. Right. Right. They grant her more personhood immediately mm-hmm. than ostensibly, you know, a group that she rubs up against far more often yeah when they talked about the shameful part i mean it's i i thought that the medusas um their their culture it was okay for them to kill like the humans who were on the third fish but it wasn't okay for people to not have their needs met right like even i think if binti had been i don't know a plant Right. I mean, that they would have wanted to meet her needs because for people to Hmm. suffer was not okay with the Medusas. So, like, yeah, killing, if it had to be done, I mean, and Oku says we don't like stinging. Right. But Mm -hmm. if they decide they have to do that, but they don't want to see suffering. So I thought that I thought that what they were saying there was that they didn't want to they didn't want to be leading to suffering. Uh even though they were okay using violence if they felt like it was necessary. I don't know. Yeah, there was not really any negotiation over the food and water, right? They were like, what do you need? She mm-hmm. was like, food and water? And they were like, cool beans. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and she's not really like, they didn't have to do that, right? They could have just left her in mm-hmm. there. Yeah. And, and it's not just like, Oku clearly takes a liking to her, but you don't get the impression that it is kind of sneaking her food. Right. It's just kind of like, it's fine for it to hang out with mm-hmm. her. I thought that's what they were saying. I'll have to try and find that part. Was they? It was not okay for them. That part of their culture was it was not okay with them for her to suffer. Um, yes. They would be fine killing her, but not for her to be hungry. Yes, they say, girl, you will die, the voice said slowly, soon. I heard more voices, but they were too low to understand. Suffering is against the way. Let us end you. Mm. Yeah. That is how, that is obviously, as you can tell from the sentence structure there early in the ability to sort of translate and understand what's happening. Uh, But uh, yeah, suffering is against the way. Well, there turned out to be more kinship, I think, between the Medusas and the Himba, right, cultures than maybe some of the other cultures that we get tertiarily touched on in the course of the novella. Yeah. Oh, quick pronoun note. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we've all been doing great. Uh, The book consistently refers to Oku as it, even after Oku is a friend with her. But on the very last page, oh really? Oku gets one he. <gasps> there's one previous to that too. Um, okay. There's 
I actually looked at it multiple times because I couldn't figure out if it was a typo. Um, yeah, right. But then the, it reoccurs at the end. So I don't know. I've, I've been saying he because I don't like to assume error. <laughs> yeah. What, what, what was it the first time? Oh, I'll have to find it real quick. Hold on. Because the, the last instance is he held up an Oku Oko. Show it to me tomorrow, I said doubtfully. Tomorrow will be the same, it said. Yep. So, like, I, we stand a he at queen, but, like, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, it is. That that we get, like, it's not that finally he isn't he. Mm-hmm. It's that, like, both pronouns seem to be correct for Oku. Or, like, sometimes Binti thinks of it as a him in moments of extreme empathy. I don't know. I'm looking for it now, but I think the other part is in the sort of uh, climactic scene when uh, Oku and Binti go before the head of the um, Medusas. The chief? The chief. Is that what they call them? Yeah. Yeah, the chief. Which I like how, regardless of how like callous the Medusae are and the chief is, um, when the chief, when they first step into Umza Uni, the chief kind of coaches Binti a little bit. And is like, hey, come on, go go ahead and talk to them. It's good. Mm-hmm. Like, kind of reassures her. It's it's yeah. cute. All right. So, with the main topics covered, it's time for a quick lightning round of other interesting things we spotted. Well, this will um, mine actually. Uh, I think flows very nicely from uh, Melissa's topic uh, because. You know, I'm in education, so I uh, <laughs> study uh, young adult literature, and um, this sort of story, which is a classic coming-of-age story, uh, which some people would call a Bildungsroman. Not me, though. Uh, <laughs> oh, not, not you? <laughs> in no, this document? That's what it says in the doc, Lucy. Yeah. I don't uh, know. Um, yeah, that's weird. Maybe a the... chat GPT must have got in there, you know? <laughs> oh, uh, God. <laughs> better not have <laughs> Maybe. We're gonna have to do a <laughs> butlerian jihad on it. We'll we'll just do some sort of uh, what do you call that when you purge a demon? Yeah. <laughs> exorcism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exorcism. An exorcism. Yeah, that's what we'll do. Uh, I I I I liked reading this as that kind of coming of age story. Uh, it follows a lot of the classic patterns, which is not that's not a critique. That's a good thing. I, I like that it is mm-hmm. following that kind of story where she's young, you know, and she thinks I'm just going to go to college and I'll be able to come back and get married and do all the things that you know take over my dad's business, all the things that you know her family was expecting her to do, and she thought idealistically as a uh, you know as a child that she would be able to go to university and then come back and things wouldn't be different um but you know that even i think if the massacre on the third fish had not occurred and she hadn't met oku that wouldn't have been the case right because going to college and going away from your home it changes you inextricably i mean it, you 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 can't <laughs> you can't not change mm-hmm. uh yeah. and it made me think you know, I teach college and I see it all. I mean, I just, I see it all the time and, and every human that I have the privilege of interacting with it, 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 it's, 
it's tragic and beautiful because they all think when they come to college, <laughs> I'm the same, you know, and I'm going to be the same and I'm going to go back home and it's all going to be the same. And, you know, like as their <laughs> professor, it's not possible, right? Like mm. you are changing because you're here and this is different, right? And you're going to be different after this. And there, there's a spectrum, like some people are going to be able to go home in some ways, uh, and it's going to feel more normal for them. Other people, and I think like Melissa's story suggests, I mean, you know, you told your story about your experience at college, but that also, I am certain, impacted like how you interacted with your family in your home too, right? <laughs> like you're also, <laughs> like you're also changed, right? You don't have the same relationships. You don't have the same, you're not the same person after like you have this sort of, um, you know, we don't all go through a traumatic experience in the way that Beanty does, thankfully. But we do, we do all change when, like, especially at that time, the sort of going to college. And I did, I was charmed, honestly, that the book was so literal. Like, she's literally going to university, right? <laughs> it's space <Yeah>. university, <laughs> but she's going to university and she's literally changed. Um, so I found that to be charming and... Um, and I and it was tragic at the end too, you know, when uh, she said the uh, the professor who that you referenced before said your culture doesn't like outsiders, and mm -hmm. Beanie doesn't understand because she thinks, oh well, no, I'm not an outsider. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But whether her hair had turned into Okuoku or not, she wouldn't have been able. You know what I'm saying? Like she right. wouldn't have been able to go mm -hmm. home either. She's an outsider now because she's gone to university, and mm -hmm. she didn't understand that. And um. And it is, I mean, it, it is, it's, I'm sorry, it makes me cry. I guess it's sad. It's genuinely sad because, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's hard to think about how things won't be the same again, especially when like Binti, you did have a supportive environment. She did, I think, come from a supportive family who cares for her. Um, and that is going to be ch challenging for her to go back. Uh, oh, and yeah, I, I guess the other thing I was going to say about it is, uh, and I think Binti also points this out, one of the inequities of our current system is that this difference, this change is going to impact certain kinds of people more than other kinds of people, right? Mm -hmm. Like people from mm -hmm. historically oppressed communities are going to be more outsidery after these kind of experiences than people who maybe are somewhere else on those the matrix of oppression right um mm -hmm. so you can't you can't go home again uh and i thought that moment when she realizes it oh. there talking to that professor was just it it's, was yeah it was real good <laughs> it it landed really well and i'll admit when i when i started reading the book and it became clear you know kind of what her family was like and how this was you know, you could tell immediately, right? Like, she's not going to be able to come home again. Uh, I wasn't sure if there was going to be a reveal that she wasn't the first one to go, right? Like, if a society, yeah. it, if there were some hints that, like, if you, you know, if you ostracize someone enough, you can pretend they don't exist. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. And so I wasn't sure if there was going to be a twist of, like, you know, in that room, we're going to be two more <laughs> folks from from her home that 
just weren't talked about and you know but i'm glad it went this way like no no preference one way or the other but another uh tempting amuse bouche of the rest of the series the second book is called Beanty home yes i read the first sentence of the description and was wanted to scream i almost started reading it immediately <laughs> i have sacred fire before i have home in my book that's right there's a there's a short story in between the the first two books in the in the omnibus oh yeah that might be why i thought the other ones were also short so maybe you shouldn't listen to me because i was looking at sacred <laughs> fire so I just don't remember. Uh, something that I thought was cool is another kind of geeky literature thing, which is that this book has interesting nonlinear narrative to it. Uh, it's it's not like totally nonlinear and disjointed, but there's a pattern that happens several times where. Um, so this the we haven't mentioned I don't think at all. This book is narrated in the first person. Oh, yeah. um, it's it's all I Binti is referring to herself as I throughout the narration. And she'll, like, gloss over a really important event and then, like, go back and fill in later. So, like, but, like, immediately. Mm -hmm. So that, that like, big massacre in the cafeteria, which is, like, that that initial violence when just about everyone on the ship is killed. I don't think we even ever meet the pilot. (laughs) I don't think we see how the pilot turned out after all this. Presumably had a, maybe a worse time of it than me. Yeah, probably not okay. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, they don't believe in suffering, but, uh, so he, yeah. he probably... Yeah, I mean, maybe they treated him well. I mean, if if they were ethically consistent, he was at least as fine as Beanty. Yeah, but the, yeah. but psychologically, yeah. you know, they can't... Sure. <laughs> yeah, it would be rough. Especially because he didn't... Like, Beanty's like, I'm going to figure out a way to do this without violence. As far as the pilot knows, the Medusae are forcing him to let them invade Umzu and kill a bunch of people. Right. And that's probably what he thought until they landed. Yeah. Uh, which is rough. Um, but uh, in, in that cafeteria massacre, it's like they come through and they kill everybody. Is basically this initial narration. And then, like, she's confronting the Medusa. Yeah, she's confronting the Medusa and the Edon, the Adon protects her. And then it goes back and it's like, let me tell you about my childhood where I learned about the Great Wave, this military technique that the Kushsei, the Medusae, use, uh, and like how terrible the Kushsei, the Medusae are. And then she remembers her friends. And then she, like, this is literally two pages after the initial massacre summary. She's like, here's what the massacre was like in more detail. And then everyone was dead. And then it bounces back even further and says my family didn't want me to go to the university and it goes into more of her backstory and how she's alienated from her own culture now and then it finally finally resumes with her back in the cafeteria kind of negotiating her way out grabbing some food heading to her room and that that sort of thing happens a few more times where incredibly important events will just be like tossed out in a chunk and you're like wait what just happened (laughs) and then it goes back and talks about something else entirely with you kind of this constant tension of like, didn't you say those jellyfish killed everyone? Why are we talking about your father? And like, of course, because that's sort of like, especially as a young person panicking in a, in an alien environment, you're going to like be like, 
that's the experience Beanty is having, right? Beanty just sees blood and death and is like, holy shit, and distracts herself and then is like, wait, what did just happen? What situation am I in? And like, it's sort of mirroring her thought process and also like giving us good, good tension where we don't get a resolution until we digest what it, this is actually like for Beanty. Cool stuff. I really like the non-linearity of it. I think a first-person narrative is often more successful when you can have some of that. It, I mean, this is not stream of consciousness, but it's got some of those mm. elements of stream of consciousness because that's how brains work. <laughs> right. It's not just a, a recitation of what happened and <laughs> how, yeah. how I felt during it. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's. I like that. When Greg, you mentioned that the um, the Mujha Kabira, the Great Wave attack method, mm-hmm. um, the Medusa move like water when at war. And I don't know if it will be mm-hmm. earlier in the page or the previous page. Before the massacre, there are students, Olo and Remy, are singing a traditional song from their city because they missed home. A song that had to be sung with a wavery voice like a water spirit. And I had not mm. even noticed that those two things were right next to each other, basically. Uh, damn. They told it. They, yeah. yeah, and and <laughs> and like, even Binti is is from a place where there is so little water that they wash with, with or they keep clean with Ochise. But there's a story of her skinny dipping and washing away the, mm-hmm. the, the cosmetic and then before, before reapplying it. And, and then she then does that again at Umza Uni before applying the new alien Ochise. And like, I get the, my reading and I don't know how, I don't know that this is definitive in the text is that the Kush are just making shit up about the Medusa. Like they move like a wave. Like it's a way of, of, depersonalizing them to say oh well they're just jellyfish they don't act uh they don't they don't have tactics they just do this thing mm-hmm. and there there's a line and but and then on the on the counter example the medusae are like it, humans can only do violence something like that oh, and i wrote it down no medusae has it's humans only understand violence Yes, and no Baduse has ever spoken to a human except long ago. And there's this implication that the Kush are kind of the gatekeepers of Earth. And so the Medusa have only ever interacted with the Kush, who are this, this like, uh, more hegemonic, more hierarchical, more um, you know, interested in normalcy. They consider the Himba to be other than uh, they teach their kid, they indoctrinate their kids about how awful the Medusa are. And like, the people at Umza Uni don't, they're like, oh, hey, you talked to some Medusa. Good for you. They're not like, holy shit, the Medusa are intelligent. Mm-hmm. They they seem to disregard the, they, they seem, you get the vibe that kind of nobody in the universe thinks the Kush are cool. <laughs> Everyone's like, those guys are kind of jerks. Or that they're, they're provincial. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I just found the part where they used he pronouns early on. It's um, when they go before the chief, like I thought. Tell the girl to sit up. The chief said, Binti Oku said his voice His voice was hard, flat. Get up. It's kind of in both in moments of intimacy, I guess. In that, yeah. I don't know. It was weird to me, too. 
so my lightning round, you know, as quick as this lightning round has been, um, <laughs> is is related to the nonlinear narrative in the sense of like, I thought it was really interesting in how stories are being retold for different audiences. And so we see it in the micro in that sort of processing of retelling a series of events to herself and to a certain degree mm-hmm. of sort of processing. Um, we see a repackaging of this, of this whole narrative to the university. We see a repackaging of, of self and of story of self um, to the Medusa, right? Like there's these, these little repackagings. There's this, a retelling of culture, a re, you know, repackaging of all of this stuff that I think is interesting and is, um, I think part of the sort of coming of age narrative, right, is to like very actively what you are doing as a young person in these stories is relearning what you have lived uh, to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also as her world is broadening, the story means something. You om- mean something different. You omit parts that people are going to care about, or you tell too many parts, and people are like, "Why did you tell me all this?" Um, and so I just found it interesting to see the way she's moving through time and learning how to tell these stories as she's not learning a new language, really, but communicating with a different type of being um, who has very different interests and priorities than hers. So, yeah, that's all. One specific example of that I think I remember is that I think we get the discovery of the Adon story three different yes. times, I think. Yep. I think we get a narration to us, the reader, of how she found it. And then like she's it's very it's very brief to the Medusa, and then I feel like it's even briefer to the professor that's gonna do research on it. Um, maybe that's just summarized in narration and so we just don't get the full story. But I think we get those three times. There might also be one she might explain it again to the chief. I thought she explained it to the students too. She explains it to the the um, ones that come to her room. Yeah, and she also does it to the to the customs people. Oh, right. Like the people at the spaceport. She tells she's like, oh, it's a it's a ceremonial object. Mm-hmm. That's that cop, but <laughs> that was yeah. a moment. <laughs> Even though she knows it's not right. Like she 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 thinks of it as she might not necessarily know it's alien technology, but she knows it's God stone. God stone. And and says that it is said to have come from the sky. Which she knows that aliens exist, so she knows that that's like yeah, it's I mean, could be could be spirits, could be aliens. I don't know. She knows that's a possibility at least. I was looking for and going to describe the scene with the cop, but I'm not sure because there's the person who reads the astrolabe perfectly. It's got to be after that. Oh, yeah, I was wrong. Um, oh, yeah, by the way, phones are called astrolabes in this universe. <laughs> you say phone. Like, I don't think I believe that's a phone. I mean, it's a phone tricorder. It's a it's a little handheld electronic device that lets you make calls. But it's also sort of a passport, right? And Yeah, um, yeah, it's got all your identity information on it. And But it also has, yeah. it doesn't just have your identity information on it. It has your history and your future in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, just like my phone's got my calendar in it. My phone's got... No, no, that's not what that means. <laughs> it is 
more significant than that. But uh, I was I was wrong when she describes her Adon to the guard, who, by the way, gar- Kush guards only get up to, only get educated until they're 10? Yes. Like, cops, cops in Kush society have an elementary school education, which is rough. Um, but she says, it's just an old, old thing. It has no math or current. It's just an inert comp- computative apparatus that I carry for good luck. So she knows, even though it's sort of a magical device to her, she knows it's a computer also, mm-hmm. which is interesting. And she minimizes it there on purpose. Yeah. Yeah, she's like, uh, don't worry. Yeah. Shut the fuck up Friday. It's a computer. <laughs> don't talk to cops. It's, it's inert. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. No, she's right. Don't talk to cops. <laughs> theme of the podcast. Don't talk to cops. <laughs> not, not the theme not of the, the podcast. Theme. Just good yeah. advice. <laughs> not. Just a sort of truth. <laughs> or maybe just yeah. some solid advice. <laughs> yes. All right. So in addition to the deep stuff, we're also big utopian sci-fi fans. So let's head to Tin Forward to talk about stuff we geeked out about. And I am going to start with food. Because Mm. I have a very silly thing that I love, especially in sci-fi, but also in fantasy. When an author feels like they have to come up with another name for a basic thing. And... Here, it, there's a cultural element here of the the thing that stuck in my head was the white milky dessert, which yeah I think mm-hmm. three I of us it. yeah the three of us probably immediately went ice cream, but also it could have been a yogurt or a custard or any number of things that would not do or well. cheesecake or cheesecake I it was cheesecake oh that'd be delicious yeah it um, made me want cheesecake so mm-hmm. yeah it it's a gelatinous milk-based dessert with slivers of coconut. I didn't look it up. The kosher ethnically Arab, I think, is the yeah. is the strong implication. And so I don't... Maybe that's just a real dessert. Could be. That, yeah. I, I mean, I know that a lot of Middle Eastern desserts tend to be, like, kind of rich and simply sweet. Mm-hmm. Not not usually. Just, like, that, that sounds vaguely to my uncultured ear to be like, yeah, that sounds like something, maybe some people from an arab culture would make as a dessert i spent a long time pondering whether it was ice cream or not but then she says i slid a slice of white milky dessert (gasps) onto my tray and i have never slid a slice of ice cream anywhere you're right but i have slid slices of cheesecake or something like a creamy pie or something Mm -hmm. but on the other hand it does melt on her tongue which you know doesn't need to be literally like phase changing on her tongue but it's something it's not it's not as dense, I think, as as cheesecake. It could be like a real so light cheesecake or like that lemonade pie that's really creamy. <laughs> mm. there, there is a category of cheesecake that I have had from a particular restaurant. It's the only thing we got from there. And it was an extremely soft cheesecake. It was basically mm-hmm. a puddle, the consistency of like Greek yogurt. Oh, with a very good. Did you good... say you were gonna be in the mood to make some cheesecake? I want to learn did how I to make that you cheesecake. Say that. <laughs> um, so you could, you would technically kind of take a slice of that, but it would not stay a, a slice on your plate. God, I gotta figure out how to make that kind of cheesecake. It's not even in my cheesecake cookbook. It's whatever it is. It's super weird. But I know the restaurant that makes it, so I can look it up by that. I'm not gonna advertise for them because they're probably weird. 
So I was looking for some of the other other foods, yes. and I I found the first mention of Oku's tentacle. Um, I clutched my aid onto my chest now as I opened my eyes. The Medusa in front of me was black and tr- translucent, except for one of its tentacles, which was tinted pink, like the waters of the salty lake beside my village, and curled up like the branch of a confined tree. Um, and then she holds up her aid on, and he pulls back. So, or it pulls back. So, uh, and her Adon turns people white and gray. Uh, so I think that he, that it is indeed some sort of, of congenital tentacle situation mm-hmm. that it's got. Or at I least buy it. Preceding um, conflict. <laughs> but I've, I've got the list of the dinner that's out in the cafeteria during the, during the, uh, massacre. Although he could, or it could have tried to touch her while she was resting, and you know, but but he, it yeah. drew back maybe before it got dead. Yeah, I don't know. But the the food is uh, roasted and marinated meats, brown long grained rice, spicy red stews, flatbreads, and that rich gelatinous dessert I loved so much, which. Sounds like a great dinner to me. It does. It kind of reminds me of, like, when I traveled to, like, Iceland. And it would be like, it would when we were doing, like, a bus tour, you'd stop at gas stations, convenience stores, and just have dinner there. And it was like, yeah, fish soup everywhere. Lamb stew. Like, what's in it? Who could say? Tastes good. Um, so... But it, it so this this whole you know unspecified dessert in particular made me think of there there are two works that came to mind. One of them is Julie Zerneda's Trade Pact Universe. The first book is called like I think Thousand Words for Stranger, where instead of coffee they have sambe. It's clearly coffee or tea, like it's the thing you have with caffeine in it. Um, and then Elizabeth Moon's Deed of Paxinarian which strange strange big book uh it had sib s-i-b was its coffee-ish beverage of choice and i i don't know i'm just so tickled pink every time i'm like you you could have just called it coffee you honestly could have no one would have been offended or felt like we were less in fantasy world or space world if you didn't rack to gino it or whatever um so anyway i love that sort of thing it making the sort of very common thing slightly alien and strange and foreign um without going so far as like to indulge in a weird exoticism (laughs) Uh uh i i think this is i don't know just tickles me pink I also loved that scene and had already had it highlighted because it was, I mean, I liked the book and I liked Beanty, but I knew in this part we were good because this is the part where she, she heaps the chicken wings and the turkey leg and the three (laughs) steaks of beef and the bread and the oranges and the bladders of water. And then, then I slid a slice of milky, white milky dessert on my tray. I did not know its name, but it was easily the most wonderful thing I'd ever tasted. Each bite would fuel my mental well-being, And if I were going to survive, I'd need that especially. And I was like, girl, you you get your dessert. (laughs) Nobody's judging you. (laughs) You do not have to rationalize this. (laughs) It's good. Loved it. Did did y'all note down the smoked fish? So Mm. the meal that Oku brings her um, is smoked fish. 
and uh, it describes the fish as uh, the color of the kush, which is interesting to me. Um, and uh, she, when she gets gets on board, she asks. This is all in flashback. All that nonlinear stuff. She asks the chefs what their killing process is for the fish, and they're like. Don't worry, we killed it humanely, which apparently is a thing the Hema care about, but the Kush don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is an interesting inversion because one could assume that the Kush are Muslim and would have, uh, you know, Muslim like hello. Uh, meat slaughtering techniques. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but they're like, for her, they make sure to kill the fish humanely, but they don't they're not as good at removing the bones <laughs> as the Himba are. The Himba have a mathematical process for identifying where all the bones in every fish are to remove them without disturbing the body. Is it time? It's time. Yeah. <clears throat> <laughs> when I was a wee girl, a teen. <laughs> wow. Flashback. We're getting one right in the episode. <laughs> <laughs> I have a very vivid memory of the first time as I was perusing um, the monster manual for the first time uh, when I was in high school. I had just started playing the D&D source Yeah, book. the D&D um, monster manual. And the page with the beholders. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> this is I love this. <laughs> like, this is. <laughs> yeah, this is my jam. Uh, you want to describe what a beholder looks a like? A beholder is like a giant eyeball with, I'll say, little arms slash tentacles all around it. I think there's eight of them. They're, Could be. Told. They're like eye stalks, right? Like they're tentacles with an eye on the end of each one. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, um, most um, like earth jellyfish or cephalopods have some kind of sensory device uh, mm-hmm. element on the end of their tentacles which uh, is you know also true in bean tea anyway all of that is to say i'm really love tentacle shit and so <laughs> <laughs> this book was amazing <laughs> i mean it was really gory with all the murders and stuff but um i I love I love Oku and I love all the descriptions of the Medusa, uh, Medusa, um, and um, just so I can avoid just I don't know talking about hentai or something, I'll just <laughs> say that there's like a history of cephalopods in science fiction and this kind of representation of the non-human other so this emerges Mm -hmm. from i think a sort of science science fiction tradition um you can think about jules verne which i think 20,000 leagues under sea isn't exactly science fiction but it's kind of science fiction um hg wells um they also had um in fact i think they may use the word Medusa uh, in describing the um, aliens in War of the Worlds. Uh, then there's, I mean, H.P. Lovecraft is racist as hell, but Cthulhu, I think, mm-hmm. figures into um, our cultural imagination. And it's because there's tentacles. <laughs> um, and then, you know, even in more um, modern representations, my favorite movie, um, which I'm sure is struck, is Arrival, which is also about um, cephalopods that are that non-human other. So I think there's just, um, I, th- 
I think tentacles are perfect. Um, they <laughs> like they in science fiction like represent a body shape that is non-human. It's very noticeably and distinctively non-human, but also is very sensory focused. Um, in mm-hmm. Binti, you know, you see the way they. I think she says they smell with their tentacles. They see her through smell through their tentacles. Um, they also can use them violently, which we see in the massacre, massacre scene. Uh, and, um, and, and they're really just swell. So I loved, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I loved the tentacles. The, the scene in which she discovers that her hair has become tentacles is really cool. So good. Because like, the implication, I guess, is that she's sort of been in denial about it because there's there's a few brief mentions in the narration of like her hair tingling weirdly, mm-hmm. um, but like it's like after she's given the speech, after everything, she kind of like collapses in relief, and that's when maybe she accidentally rubs some of the ojis they offer her hair, and they're like blue, pulsating. Uh, moving on their own able to sense able to feel tentacles in place of her hair can you imagine um, ah and if if you look at himba modern day himba hair they it looks interesting it looks distinct from a lot of the locks that you'll see people wear a lot of the plaits that you'll see people wear in other cultures um because uh, the ones that i've seen they're the way people wear their hair seems to be based on social standing from what I can tell from modern day folks in the book, they plait their hair in weird, like geometric mathematical patterns that are implied to be part of the kind of the Himba ability to harmonize and do cool math. Um, but it, from what I'm able to gather, young Himba women will have most of the plait covered in Ojize. And then at the end of the plait, at least for some of them, there's like this spray of hair that's like this almost fan-like bush of hair at the end of of a few inches. Um, And it's interesting to me to think about like how that is distinct in structure from a tentacle. Mm -hmm. Like the the tentacles presumably end in their jellyfishy tentacles, right? So they might have like ruffles and stuff on them, but they probably end in a point. And the distinction between how her hair would have been with the you know the end of a plait. She doesn't have locks; she has plaits that are braided. Yeah. Um, and so there there would be that end, that fringe that's on any plait, um, and that maybe is like some modern day himbo where it's it's this spreading bush, and then that's gone. Mm-hmm when when you've got a tentacle there is is it's interesting to think about like the intricacies of that change yeah and wouldn't oku be such a nice friend i mean once you got past the initial threat yeah Yeah, he did kill her first crush and some stuff like that not personally (laughs) i don't know maybe I don't. I don't know that it's clear how many of the kids Oku killed. The other kids, because Oku is is a team also. So you talked about how tentacles are classic sci-fi. I want to talk about another thing of classic sci-fi: Clark's three laws. So Arthur C. Clarke, classic sci-fi artist, classic sci-fi author, 
probably problematic in some way, as all those old men of sci-fi are. Um, God damn. <laughs> but a whole lot of people know about... So he, he did 2001 is probably his best-known work, did some cool stuff. I like Rendezvous with Rama. Um, but he uh, has a set of three laws, the third of which a lot of people have heard. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, uh, which we talked about magic and mysticism a lot. But uh, that's the third law. And these are all kind of like, these aren't like recommendations. These are just observations of tropes that appear in in sci-fi. The first two have to do with the possible and the impossible. So the first one is, when a distinguished but elderly scientist states that something is possible, he is almost certainly right. When he states that something is impossible, he is very probably wrong. So that's that's talking about the classic like if a scientist is like well it just may be that we may we can adjust the harmonics and cause us to be able to communicate with these people like scientist is always right about that or usually right about that but if the scientist is like that's impossible you can't communicate with people using that ancient device the scientist is wrong <laughs> and that happens here um, in an interesting way where um, the a professor comes up to her and is like what you did is impossible but the professor isn't like you were lying about what you did the professor's excited the professor's like what you did was impossible and i'm really excited to see how it happened um and then the second law is the only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture a little way past them into the impossible and we talked about like utopian ideals and the idea of somehow being able to empathize with people enough to make violence stop and as a pacifist, I am very conscious of the fact that, like, boy, howdy, pacifism doesn't always work. And sometimes it feels like violence must be done, is, is necessary, and definitely is tactical in some situations, right? Like, sometimes in order to prevent violence, you must commit violence, because in that moment, or, you know, in that war or whatever, there's not an opportunity to talk it out. Uh, but... With the empathizing that happens that uh, that Lucy talked about, like, that is an attempt to do the impossible. Like, this book is about Binti, a 16-year-old girl <laughs> who has just seen all of her friends killed, is thirsty and starving, and has no way of communicating with these people that she's been told were monsters her whole life, tries to communicate with them, tries to do the impossible succeeds and then keeps trying to do the impossible and keeps succeeding and it's just like this is a classic structure of sci-fi and we didn't mention this i don't at at any point because i think we all agree fuck them but this book was the subject of a lot of um uh people talking it down when it was up for awards um this was the season of the sad puppies and the angry puppies and so on where a lot of (laughs) a lot of racist and sexist people were like thought that there were too many i'm i'm high level summarizing here thought that there were too many women and brown people and queer people that got stories in um and uh and like the, you know all their criticisms was like why was this story picked and so on and like binti is a just a classic sci-fi story about a kid who goes off into space and figures out how to talk to aliens and makes friends with them <laughs> and then gets to do cool sci-fi shit like it's such a like the cultural stuff is interesting of her being from the himba people and and uh the the sort of interesting cultural intricacies of all that but like 
from a narrative standpoint, you know, it's just she tries to do an impossible thing and figures out how to do it like a plucky youngster. Um, and it's cool. Yeah. So why shouldn't it be up for all the awards, right? Like, I don't know. I mean, it's a great yeah. book. Like, right? Yeah. Like, it's, it's, it absolutely is deserving of, of all sorts of awards. Now, it's kind of one of those perfect novellas where it's like very digestible, very readable, a lot to dig into and think about and remember and all that. Good shit. This makes me think of something. When we were talking earlier about sort of what is magic in this book and what isn't, there are people who, for whom the distinction between sci-fi and fantasy is science or mm-hmm. magic. And yeah. this story is having none of it. And it makes the whatever is happening, the mechanisms... <laughs> so intrinsic to the story that you don't get to pretend that it's it's not useful to pretend and the book doesn't let you pretend that it is all just one or all just the other and you don't get to try and slice it in some sort of hyper rational way like whether it's sufficiently advanced technology or magic you can't you can't pull those out of the story that's that is what makes it not just a classic coming of age is i think those cultural elements are core to this particular narrative like obviously the narrative structure is one thing but and the 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 archetypes involved but this story you can't pull those things out and and have it be the same type of thing yeah, if you try to draw a line in the sand and say, like, well, all of these kind of Himba traditional cultural things are the magic, the Ochise, the Adon, all of this. But then you're confronted with the fact that, like, she's on a spaceship with a bunch of teens, and they all seem to be able to do hard equations <laughs> that make electricity happen. Right. Like, they can all tree, they can all do these these weird mathematical practices that seem to just be like magic spells except math mm-hmm. uh yeah I, i'm sorry i don't that's what math is right i <laughs> assume <laughs> I, I mean yeah from a certain point sure. of view yeah get the incantation right and uh understanding the fundamental mysteries of the universe mm-hmm. i mean pythagoras certainly thought so <laughs> like math has only recently become not a universally mystical practice i'm a literature professor just wanted to make that clear <laughs> <laughs> yes we got two computer scientists and a literature professor and we all think math is magic <laughs> so that's beanty you want to take us away lucy so what we're gonna do is at the end of each episode we're gonna pick the next thing that we are watching or reading based on a connection to what we talked about today So, that's me, and (laughs) I had a very difficult time with this. This has been 48 hours of um, (laughs) lots of of turnarounds and and, and, um, reversals, and I was going to, we were going to read a 250-page novel, but I've changed that. That's not too bad. We could have done that. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, okay, well, I could still change. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but 
I think I'm I'm decided. So I was really interested um, in being tea about how um, how people had to change in order to survive. I think being tea did, Oku mm. did, um, like cultures do, people do, uh, and and I think a thing about this book that is fascinating is that relationship between language and thought. Um, uh-oh. I, <laughs> yeah, like, um, Vygotsky's, uh, Lev Vygotsky, a psychologist, uh, talked about how, uh, the way we, we, our thoughts, uh, and then the language that we use are, um, are inextricably related. It's not like you have a thought and then produce some language, which I think is like, like that's sort of the way a lot of people think it happens, right? You just have some thoughts mm-hmm. and then boom, you produce some language. And Vygotsky argues that actually language and thoughts are, they have a really complicated, um, recursive relationship. And I think Binti really gets at a lot of that in the way that Binti learns to communicate with the Medusas, uh, in this book, and I, at any rate, have chosen something I have not read, but I have heard a lot about it, and I have been wanting to read it for a long time. It is for a younger audience. Um, it's hmm. YA, so this is not for grown-ups, and I don't know if y'all are <laughs> going to like it, but I have selected Peter Brown's The Wild Robot. Interesting. Ooh. I don't think I've heard yeah, of it. Yeah, I haven't either. Um, I'm gonna check it out. Well, yeah. And then if we, if how depending on how long their writer strike goes, next time it comes around, maybe we'll be reading a 250-page novel. <laughs> Excellent. So that is presumably available from your local library or any online purchaser. If you can get it, because the kids love it, so you're gonna have to probably get in line virtual line the virtual line (laughs) so yes next time that would be october we will be discussing the wild robot on before the future game unless the strike ends yeah if the strike somehow ends super quick we might not we'll 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 play it by ear you'll hear on this feed yeah we we do have a star trek episode recorded it will sit until it is appropriate to publish so Mm -hmm. You can find uh, links in our show notes over at beforethefuture.space. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, uh, you can comment there or write to us at onscreen at beforethefuture.space. I'm Lucy Arnold, and I sometimes blog at intertextualities.com. I'm Gregory Avery Weir, and you can find me at ludusnovus.net or on co-host, uh, which I post to more often, at cohost.org slash G-A-W. And I am Melissa Avery Weir, and I live at urson.net, <laughs> and on Macedon at melissa at urson.life. Our music is Let's Pretend by Josh Woodward. It's used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. Thanks for listening. I'm sure we'll all live happily ever after Surrounded by butterflies, children, and laughter It's a fairy tale story, so let's just pretend Hallelujah, amen, it's the end Happily ever after
Holy fuck. That's good, though. That's very good. <laughs> That's a strong opener on the first episode. <laughs> Coming in, smeared up, tentacles out. <laughs>